killed a lot of the racecraft is because of of that reason and and also that's why i think back in the day you saw a lot more physical altercations after the races is because they're like damn man i gotta go home and like i gotta go to the shop and fix this thing dude you're doing two videos a week that's madness we do kind of depends how it falls like during season it's easy to do two off season, not so much. Right. And are you the only guy editing? Yeah. Yeah. I do everything. Uh, from the ideas to how it's shot to um, editing, posting, thumbnails, everything. Yeah. It's, it's quite a bit. Jeez. What, uh, like, did you grow up watching YouTube like, or vlogs or anything like that? Like, you're, it's pretty dialed in. Like, yeah, I mean, so it, my passion for um, for filming started when I was like 13, 14 years old. Uh, my older brother was racing sprint cars, and so I'd go to the track, and um, I wanted to do something to feel productive. He already had a crew chief. He had a car chief, um, and so I just wanted to feel productive. So I, I would film his races so he had a chance to go back and watch them. And so that's what like got me into it, and I just bought like a $200 camera, started filming, and then uh, there's a company called Loud Pedal, mm. and Loud Pedal does like sprint car videos and stuff like that. Uh, not so much anymore, but back then they did. And I started watching their videos, and they like put music on it and all kinds of shit. And I was like, dude, that is awesome! Like I, I gotta do it. So I started to put music and started to learn how to edit and started going further and further. And here we are now. Um, uh, what probably ten years. Of filming and editing 11 years so uh yeah i mean and then from there the vlogging stuff is far easier because it's so raw it's so organic you got a camera you're holding it you flip it you turn it um your shots aren't perfect uh but there's a lot more that goes into it than a lot of people might think for sure for sure i mean the the editing has to be massive just with the amount that you're filming no uh, I would say in the beginning, yes. Um, in the beginning, we had so much footage. We, you know, I'd stop filming in a day and have three, four hour, five hours of footage, and you're cutting it down to 10 minutes because the attention span of, you know, now is so much shorter than what it used to be. I think TikTok and Reels and, you know, the Facebook shorts or YouTube shorts and, and the Facebook stories, like, I think that really changed the game for a lot of people. Um, and their attention span, like especially TikTok and Reels, you don't like something, you scroll. So you got to keep it interesting because people click off super fast. So, um, you know, when you have five hours of footage, it took forever just cutting footage. And and now as you got better at it, as we figured out more of what to do, I think it, it helped us a ton because now we end up at hour 30, hour 20 um, amount of footage. And that's a lot easier and a lot less for us to cut up and, or for me to cut up and it just takes less time. So, um, yeah, no, I, I enjoy it. Um, at times I enjoyed it in the beginning and you know, now it's just a job. Right. Right. That's, uh, such a good point. I want to get back to that. Um, you know, anything just becomes a job. So I was, I was cruising through, uh, I guess, well, Haley's YouTube channel, um, watching some videos before this you're in, uh, you're in wedding planning mode now, right? Yeah, well, I, she's in wedding yeah. planning mode. <laughs> I told her, I said, look, I, I, once the proposal is done, my job's done. Uh, now I say, yeah, we're in 
wedding planning mode, I guess you could say. Um, it's kind of tough to do while you're trying to race and um, the race season never stops. If you're a racer, you know, you know, it's, it just never stops. It keeps going, going. And then during the off season, it's meeting and this and that, and this getting ready for the new season. So um, yeah, we, hopefully we trying to plan it like November next year, maybe December off season. That way her brother's off season. Uh, she's off and, and, you know, all of our friends are all involved in racing. So everyone's got off time during that time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I had to plan my wedding and, well, and my first kid around not interfering with the race season. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, I guess, you know, for, for the YouTube stuff like that, that must take up so much time. What do you, you, and I, and it sounds like you have a bunch of other job titles too. What do you tell people when someone asks, what do you do for a living? Uh, it depends if I want to keep it short. Hmm. Um, if I want to keep it short, I just tell them I'm a professional race, race wife. Um, if, <laughs> if I want to get elaborate and, and people are like, no, for real, like, what do you do? And so, yeah, I mean, we have the YouTube, um, that we do full time. And then from there, um, you know, I race myself, um, but I do all the merch designs, um, the printing for the merchandise, my younger brother and another one of our employees does the fulfillment. So that takes a lot off. Um, and they do a lot, they do a majority of the printing. Um, but for in the beginning I was printing, um, before I, you know, we had employees that were able to do it for us. So, um, you know, and, and as we're getting bigger and bigger, you're able to kind of outsource certain things. Like you find a good designer here and there and, and you have them do a couple shirts. And so that, that helps. Um, but you know, for the beginning, probably two years, it was just me and, uh, doing everything from the fulfillment to the designing, um, placing the orders and, and doing all that. So, uh, yeah, I wear multiple hats, but, um, I guess it's what makes everything go around. Are you doing, uh, like, again, watching those videos this morning, uh, you guys are doing in-show ads. Are you trying to hustle sponsorship for the YouTube stuff, or does Haley have, like, a, you know, a, a full, you know, um, like a, a full-time person doing everything in-house? Yeah, no, so we actually got hooked up with a, a gentleman named Abe, um, and we ended up branching to him when he worked at YouTube. Um, and it was like, Hey, for whatever reason, our views are going down. Um, can you look into our content, figure out like why that's happening? Like our average view durations up, um, our click through rate is up, but our views are down. Mm. So, you know, if you, if you give us some pointers and so. Um, I got hooked up with him through that. And then he ended up going off and making a management side um, to his, uh, he made his own management and then for YouTube. So uh, we got hooked up with him and Haley obviously has her manager for racing, but uh, we have our YouTube manager as well that, that sells those deals um, that, you know, when you click on a video and it says, Hey, this video is sponsored by blank. Um, and we do a simple ad read. Uh, or the DraftKings on Instagram or anything like that. So we do have a, a manager that handles that side and and keeps it super easy for us. But for the most part, I mean, I mainly deal with him uh, as far as he comes to me, says, hey, can you do this? Um, and then you just got to make sure it doesn't clash with your partners on the racing side. 
And then, you know, if all the boxes check and everything looks good, then, you know, you just can, you're able to move on from there and, and go about it. Um, and, and then you got to submit them and they come back and they give you approval or ask for changes and then they go in the next video. Right on, right on. So let's uh, jump into your racing stuff. And like with all my racers, I, I always want to start and like figure out what their, you know, what their childhood was like. You grew up in in Florida, right? And so I yeah. guess paint me a picture, you know, what it was like growing up, uh, what your parents or your dad did for a living, um, kind of those early years. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in motocross. I raced dirt bikes when I was younger, um, not for long. Uh, a buddy of ours ended up getting paralyzed at a, pri a pri private test session, and uh, my dad called it quits right there. I was like seven. So uh, from there, we ended up going on and, and uh, starting in go-karts and then racing go-karts and off to um, like the dirt world, the dirt micro sprints and sprint cars. My bro older brothers raced sprint cars, and um, and then we moved up here to North Carolina, um, and that was only for the sole reason of one day my older brother's car chief was like, Hey, um, you should apply to this drive for diversity for Colin. I'm like, well, what do I got to do? So I, uh, looked it up and you had to make a video and I was like, well, I got that down. Um, and so I made a really cool video and, uh, we uploaded it and filled out the application. He got accepted and was running for rev racing. I think if I'm wrong, I think you were in the next program with him maybe yeah, or yeah yeah no? 100% man he's a great guy we hit it off um so yeah so he was a part of that and then we moved up here and uh that's what got me into it um my you know just honestly just a typical middle class family that we could sprint car race and and do that but it was you know on a budget and if Colin was racing, there was no way that I could do it. Um, so when he was, when he moved on to the rev program and, and had the funding from the diversity program, it opened up doors for me to be able to start racing. Um, and that's what allowed, I mean, obviously I was racing, but I wasn't like doing it as he was. And, and that allowed me to uh, do that. And we actually, since we were up here in North Carolina, we, we took his sprint car and sold it and got a late model, and the late model was way cheaper than the sprint car was. So we were able to take the leftover money from what we sold and we bought the late model and just raced on that for like a year. Um, and then I went into the rev program. So yeah, it's, I mean, that's pretty much how it started and, and how it went. And yeah, and from there, you know, just able to run four years with them. Yeah. I'm curious um, for people who don't know, explain what the drive for is it for diversity the drive for diversity program yep. like shootout is like how that all works and then if you whatever set fast lap i assume like what happens yeah so nascar has a uh, diversity side to the entire corporation um and so they have the drive for diversity with rev racing and uh, you submit an application and um, they narrow it down to 10 14 16 um, 17 sometimes. So, uh, and then you go to the combine, what they call it, and they test you physical, um, they test your media skills, and then they test you on track and, um, they assess you on all three and then they pick their, their team for the year. And uh, it's a fully funded program, which is the only reason that I was able to race K and um, which is now the ARCA East, um, for all those years. But, uh, it's a really cool program for people that, you know, all kinds of different 
and all different minorities and females and uh for them to get a shot in racing and um for me it was it was the only way that i was able to kind of live out that that childhood dream of traveling and racing and and doing that kind of stuff yeah that's gotta be like the most legit shootout i think there is at least in north america i would i would 100 percent agree yeah like Mm -hmm. you know when you're a young kid and you you whether you're fast or not but you think you're fast and you start looking for these options like okay how do i go and get a ride somewhere and you know, in my eyes, that's like, wow, you, you perform here, you go race K and N and everyone's watching those races. Yeah. And then for sure. And I think there's a lot of people for C in the racing world, these tryouts or, Oh, this kid got picked up. Like we have all been in sport. We obviously know the way this world of racing works. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, I, I do agree that it is probably the most legit operation and, um, combine and tryout that you can physically do. Um, because if you do perform in, in essence, my brother, um, he was just an average Florida sprint car kid. And then all of a sudden we're, he's racing cannon. Um, and obviously that helped me, um, cause they got to know me mm. and then, but I still, I went to the, I applied the first year and didn't even make it to the combine. And then I applied the second year and I went to the combine and I was, I want to say second fastest or, or the fat, I, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but I was within the top one, two or three. Um, and the other two, whether they were in front of me or whatever it was, it was, uh, I think it was Jay Beasley and, uh, and my old brother. So, um, we were, I mean, it was kind of right there in the pudding. Like you, you go out there, you perform and you get an opportunity. So, uh, yeah, super blessed for that program. And, and to be honest, it, it's made me who I am today with put me in places I never thought I'd get to do. For sure. For sure. What does it cost maybe then, or even now, like to run a season of K&N or ARCA? Then it was like 800,000 now. I want to say you're in the seven figures, 1.1, 1.2, maybe to run for like a good team. Obviously you can go run, you know, something that you damn near need a technical shot to get into for, for pennies on the dime, but to go run for a legit operation. Now you're, you're spending a lot of money nowadays. Yeah. My one K and N start was something like that. Just to try and get laps around, around Watkins <laughs> Glen. It was fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my first time to Watkins Glen, I, I didn't know because, like I said, I came from dirt racing. I had no idea about you had to, like, pump the brakes in between, like, after you run over the rumble strip and it would, you know, beat the pads out. I, I didn't know that you had to pump the brakes. And so I spent half the practice session bleeding brakes in the pits. Uh, the brakes aren't working. The brakes aren't working. Finally, at Jefferson Hodges, who's now, I want to say he's a competition director at Penske, but he was my competition director at um, – at Rev, he came on the radio and said, hey, are you pumping the brakes between corners, like getting the pads back to the pad or back to the rotor? And I said, oh, no one told me that. I had no idea. So I spent half the practice at Watkins Glen just sitting in the pits on jack stands. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the the, the rumble strips through the bus stop, I guess everywhere. So aggressive there. Yeah, yeah. I've, I never, never was experienced that. And then – Later on, we ended up getting like the springs where it'll actually like spring the pads back. So you ain't got to do it as bad. But yeah, I'd go hit the rumble strips through 
one or off of one and then in the canine car it was like fresh repave of Watkins Glen back then obviously it's got wear on it now but you were wide open from one all the way to the bus stop so I came off hit the rumble strip went through you know two up the s's and and got down to the bus stop and went to the brakes and it was just to the floor and I just went straight (laughs) (laughs) so what uh like you guys moved up like your brother first and then you obviously moved up to Charlotte because what what were the requirements for like I guess full time working in the shop at the at the Rev deal once you're accepted? Yeah, so they have a gym um and a um a physical coach inside the gym, Coach Horton. And um so you're required, um, at least back then, I don't know what it is now, but you're required to be in the shop seven thirty to four thirty or 7.30 to 4. Um, and so we would all get there at 7.30, go in the gym, work out for two hours, hour and a half, whatever it was with coach um, and whatever he wanted you to do. And and then you go out in the shop and you work. For myself, I was going there and doing that. And then I ran the graphic department. So, I mean, it was only me. And they had bought a printer, um, a vinyl printer, and had no idea what they were doing with it. And they were like, hey, you know how to run this? And I'm like, yeah, like I've spent years on these machines. So I uh, designed all the cars and printed them and installed all four Canaan cars and two late models every week. So I would do that. And then that kind of took away. I felt like in the beginning from my, um, my like progress of being able to understand what the hell a coil bind was and, and what sitting on the right front men and sitting on the left front and, when you, you know, you got reverse truck arm split or whatever it was, I didn't even know what that meant. And I think that took away from it in the beginning. And so I had a conversation and we figured out a way that I could, you know, kind of ha- at lunchtime, go to lunch, come back. And then I was in the shop. So, um, you know, it's kind of by my asking of like, Hey, can we figure out a way that I can do this? And then obviously some days you end up working super late and, and, but um, it was worth it to be able to like go in the shop and actually understand the the dynamics of of what the car did. Yeah, I think that's um, you know probably less and less now. Kids are getting time, you know, working full time in the shop. Back in the day, that was your only only way to go racing. Um, but now you you know you show up, you write a check, and you can fly in and out of every race. Yeah, and and honestly, I think it it's why you see so much the the racecraft has gone so far downhill um it is because of stuff like that um and then i think that's why you see such a difference in when a cup driver comes down to the truck series or anything those guys have those guys grew up in here when you did go to the shop every day and you did work on your own stuff and so when they come down they're able to completely dissect you know their race car hey it's doing this they're not just you know, hey guys, car's tight. When I'm sitting in our corner, it's tight. Well, what, what, it, what do you want? Like, yeah. I mean, there's a million adjustments I can make for that. Um, and so I think that side has gone down more and more. And then also, it's killed the racecraft because kids don't work on their own shit anymore. So they have no idea, you know, what it takes when they go decide to knock a right front fender off or, you know, drive someone so just unbelievably ridiculous and and beating the things to death they don't care they just go home and and go do their their sim time and all right guys show up trucks ready again you know 
and and I think it's killed it um, and killed a lot of the racecraft is because of of that reason. And and also that's why I think back in the day you saw a lot more physical altercations after the races is because they're like, damn man, I gotta go home and f- like I gotta go to the shop and fix this thing. Uh, you just knock the front clip off of it. You knock the rear clip clip off of it. And, um, or that was my best right front spring I owned. Um, and, and nowadays they're like, no, all right guys, thanks for the work. See you next week. And, and it's, it honestly, it's killed it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's, it's probably reached the pinnacle in the truck series. Like I remember, uh, I think it was 2016. I raced the, the most port race and coming out of turn one on like one of the restarts, I watched some guy just get on the bumper of a guy and hook him straight into the inside wall in a place where I watched a, a guy die in Trans Am when I was a kid, like in the exact same way that that guy just got wrecked because he, he didn't lift and didn't give a shit. And I went, I got on the radio. I'm like, these guys are animals out here. <laughs> yeah. The, some of the racing you watch, it's like, I don't, I, I, I'm glad I wish I could get the opportunity, but a part of me would be suspended after race two. Like there's, there's just no way. Um, and, and it's also, there's no repercussion to wrecking somebody anymore. Um, because if I tear my truck up wrecking you, I ain't got to fix it. It comes to a racetrack again. It doesn't cost me any more money because no one's paying crash damages. I mean, not that I know of. I mean, most of the time it's just, what's it cost for a race? Here, pay it. And, and that's it. So I think that side of it has really hurt the sport. Um, and then also you can't fight after because when you do fight, you get fined. Yep. Uh, they'll use it in every commercial because it's great for the fans, but you'll get fined because of it. And you can't show up to the racetrack again until you pay that fine. So it, if I go out and junk you, what are you going to do about it? Come crash me back the next race. No, because it's going to hurt you in points and, and it's going to tear your truck up. So the moment you crash someone back, I mean, especially in the truck series where arrow is so much bigger than any of the other three se- or any of the other two series, uh, because of the, you know, just the massive deck lid and, and how big, um, the right side is and everything, uh, arrows so big with no motor, um, that you can't afford to wreck someone back. And so I think it's, especially in the truck series, there's no repercussion to wrecking someone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you see it, you see it, right. Um, going back to your, uh, your K and N, uh, career, you had some awesome runs. Like you won a couple races, uh, second in the championship. Like that's super impressive in, you know, competing against guys in GMS equipment and guys in like super, super stout equipment running out of essentially cup shops for, for a K and N deal. Yeah, my uh, my rev program uh, when I was there. Um, now they've obviously got a lot more resources with Gamebridge and Chevy. Um, but when I was there, it was it was not that way. And that's not to say that we had bad equipment because we obviously had equipment caliper. Uh, we just had to work harder for it. And uh, I I got a really good crew chief my third year, um, and we were extremely well. Um, and, and we took the previous crew chief, which was Mark Green, and uh, I still talk to Mark still talk to Mark all the time. He's been, he was just at my house like two days ago. Um, and we moved him to like the driver coach role for me. Um, he, he obviously had experience behind the wheel, putting together long races. 
And uh, it helped me a ton having him in that role. And then I had Doug Howe as my crew chief. And yeah, we went out and New Smyrna, we had a lot of bad luck. Um, New Smyrna, first race of the season was leading and, and blew a rear end seal. Um, and Bristol, we got crashed by Sam. Gateway, I was leading the race, uh, had a kill switch failure with 40 to go. So we had a lot of opportunity, I would say, to win probably five or six of the races. We ended up winning two of them um, and probably would have given us a championship. But yeah, nonetheless, I mean, we had a, a great run, um, especially that third year. The fourth year, not so much. Um, that was the Arkham merger year, and we couldn't at the time afford to have the Elmore motors. So we were on the K&N motor, and it just it, honestly it killed us. Um, we go to Phoenix and like you'd get a run off the top and they would pull you off the bottom. And it's like, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Um, so, but yeah, we had a, we had a good run. Um, and, and I had a blast doing it. Um, it was something that I never thought I was going to get the chance to do. And then when I got to do it and when we got to be successful, it made it even that much more better. Um, and obviously, yeah, I would love to go around trucks, but Who's going to front that bill? I mean, even if I would have won the championship and won every single race back then, I think the times have changed a little bit. Um, when you start to see more people like Ford and Chevy and Toyota starting to put a little bit more behind certain drivers. But back then there was, I mean, it was straight up. You paid no matter what. And it's still that way to this day. Don't get me wrong, but there are few and far people that are getting more chances. And so for me back then, I just didn't have, you know, $2 million burning a hole in my pocket and I didn't have anybody banging at the door waiting to spend it. So that was it. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's, that's simply the way it goes. Right. Um, you had a, uh, you had a decent wreck. I've heard you talk about like you really screwed up your back. Um, sounds like you're, you're being a little like loose with the safety equipment. Is that the case? Yeah, I didn't, uh, I never liked crotch belts, um, especially the ones we had. They were like the, the, I guess you would say one, two, three, four, five, the six ones yeah, yeah, to yeah. where they like came over both legs. I hated them. So I didn't wear them, um, ever. And I was at Bristol and took one of the smallest wrecks you could physically see at Bristol. Uh, I mean, I've seen way bigger and harder wrecks. And it just like slipped me in the seat just enough to where like it tore a muscle in my back and I, it was terrible. I mean, it felt horrible. I mean, I ran the rest of the race and then once you complain about it on the radio, like, Hey guys, my back is killing me. Then NASCAR is obligated to do safety protocol. And then next thing you know, I'm being hauled up on a stretcher. Like, like, I mean, <laughs> you would think something catastrophic happened. I was just, my back hurt. It wasn't like that bad. Um, I mean, lesson learned. Um, but so then I got carried on a stretcher, um, like in the golf cart. I mean, someone probably thought the ever living worst happened to me. You get put in the ambulance, then you get taken to the hospital. Um, and I was fine. I mean, I just tore a, a muscle. It wasn't anything crazy. Um, but yeah, no, it was just all because I didn't wear my crotch belt. You, uh, do you keep it tight now? Like, did you learn your lesson on all the safety shit? Like I've seen guys like wearing, you know, whatever, go-kart shoes and then they have a big fire and then it's like all of a sudden now they're in their full long johns and socks and shit. 
Yeah, safety for me has, as I've gotten older, I've realized how important it is. Um, I actually was just ta- telling Haley that I want to go th- get the hybrid. Um, I don't like the Hans anymore. And that's just part of it. Um, also, when you're racing open wheel cars, you have to be a lot more you know, proactive with your safety um, because there are a lot more accidents and you do go flipping big and, you know, it's, it's not, if it happens, it's when uh, it's, I mean, it's no matter what you're going to go flipping. So uh, at some point in your career, so yeah. And then, and then they're methanol fires. So you got to have the right proper safety to um, for that because no one can see the fire because um, methanol burns clear. So uh, if you're not, if you're not proactive with it, like I am now, like I wasn't in the past. Yeah. You're asking to get hurt. Yeah, for sure. So when the, um, you know, I guess when the rev program ended, uh, where, like, how were you conceptualizing your career? Like, was it okay? I want to, you know, keep hunting sponsorship and try and go truck racing and, you know, climb this massive mountain of finding two, three million bucks or go do something else for a living. Um, no, not one bit of me. Um, and the reason is, is because I've watched so many of my friends and so many people I've become close with um, through racing go through the exact same thing. Good race car drivers. Um, one of the best race car drivers uh, that, like that doesn't get to race that in the past was unbelievable was Drew Herring. Uh, Drew Herring was unbelievable and never got an opportunity. Um, and so... Uh, I watch people, uh, Vargas is still doing it to this day and I don't know how, I mean, it is a tough road and, you know, still trying to find that, that dollar to do it. And, uh, you know, kudos to him. I tell him all the time, you know, I, I could never, um, I, I just, I feel like the amount of time you spend writing emails and sending cold call or, and making cold calls and sending those emails, you could spend towards doing something else that has a, Hey, if I put the work in, I'm going to make money. If I put the work in just to go race, you still don't make money. <laughs> so like, and how long is that, is that withstandable for? Right? So if I go spend eight hours a day, five days a week, 40 hours, a, um, a week putting in the time, well, that I just spent 40 hours and there's no guarantee I'm going to make a single dime out of it. And then also there's, if I get one race, that doesn't mean I get two and it doesn't mean I get three. And I, and truthfully, honestly, there's, I could count on a single hand, how many people within the truck series and Xfinity series put together are there off true sponsor dime. The rest are just dad's money. And that's not to be, you know, to take away from them. Because if my dad had the damn money, then I'd be doing the same thing. Yeah. But, and, and I don't fault those kids for having that, you know, they, if they got it great, it just seems like every rich parent seems to put their kid in racing. And I don't know why that happens, but it seems to be so, or, or it's just the rich kids always rise to the top because they have the ability to do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's so little, um, and, and I see how hard it is for, even Haley to, to find the funding to do a single year. And she's got the biggest social following, which is brings in far more viewers and, and um, interaction than any of the broadcasts do. Mm. So yeah, there's more value, honestly, in that than there is with a sticker on the truck. And, and so to see 
how hard it is for her to put together the funding to go for a year. There's no damn way I could. I mean, not a chance. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, and honestly, I'm not going to go do it in a, in a truck that I can't win in. I just, I said that the moment I was almost done with it, uh, with the Canaan series, I said, if I can't go race in a caliper truck that I can win, I don't want to do it because I don't have fun not winning. I mean, I don't know a single racer that does. And, and, but for me, I, I could never go run in underfunded equipment and be like, yeah, guys, top 20 today. Great job. I just can't. I can't. I have to at least have a shot of winning. For sure. For sure. Then it, like we were saying before, then it really becomes a job super quick. And, and uh, you know, a job where you're not at home all the time, you're running around, and a job you're doing for free. Like it's, you know, yeah. yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. I've been trying to pinpoint, um, you know, what is it about racing, like that feeling in racing that, you know, keeps me coming back for more. And you obviously still race dirt and stuff. Like, do you, are you able to articulate like what the feeling is or the, you know, certain different aspects of racing that, that are <laughs> like, why, why do I keep coming back for more? <sighs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, the only reason I race what I race now, cause I run micro micro sprints for those who don't know, they're a sprint car downsized, um, with a 600 CC motor in it, a street bike engine motor. And it's super competitive. You race against really good caliper race car drivers, um, cup guys, uh, really good dirt drivers. Uh, they have really big shows, 20,000 to win, 24,000, 10,000, 12,000 all year long. Um, and then we got our biggest race of the year, Tulsa shootout coming up. So the caliper of driver in that you can race against is great. The competition is there. And it's the only thing that I feel I can do affordably and have nice shit. Mm. Like I sure I could go get a late model. But I'm not going to go beat Lee Falk. Like, there's shit's way above what I could afford. Um, and it's not even almost on the afford spectrum. It's it's as much as it is to the point of, like, do I really want to spend that much money? For what? You know? Like, in the micro stuff, I can do it at a reasonable price where I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll get, I'll get a set of tires. Oh, I'll get wheels or you know, I can get a nice motor or, you know, and, and do it and have really nice stuff for a somewhat reasonable price. Yeah. It sounds like for you, it's the competitive uh, side of things. Yeah. I like to win. Yeah. Like I don't have fun if I'm not winning. If I'm running like shit, I don't even want to be there. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. You, uh, you grew up playing soccer pretty competitively too. Yeah, I did that. Um, I got when we got out of motocross, I was like, my parents were like, well, you got to find something to do like in and we didn't know anything about like the go kart world or anything like that. And so I started playing soccer. Um, I played all the way through high school and I enjoyed it. I just got burnt out. It just I, I don't like being reliable on a bunch of other people like there's 10 other people. And if they don't do their job, you don't succeed. Like, I don't care how hard you work. Um, and so I just, after high school, I did it and it, I had a blast doing it and I still enjoy it. And I'll watch select games here and there, like world cup. I for sure watch. Um, but other than that, I, I, it's just something to do for the time being. Right. Right. Uh, do you do a bunch of sim racing? 
Yeah, uh, like every night. Okay. Uh, we have so I grew up playing i racing. I got it when I was thirteen, um, and I like sitting in a chair like what I'm in right now, with a wheel on a desk, like a hundred and twenty dollar wheel, and pedals on the ground. And I played and played and played. Hell, I got really good like that. And then we got um, a sim through a sponsor deal, and it's full motion. It's like $47,000 rig. And it has made sim racing like way better. Yeah. <laughs> so now I can't like, like I actually feel bad about how much I, I spend on the sim at night. Like I like look at the time. I'm like, damn, like I know I should get off, but I really don't want to every time I play. Um, and so, yeah, I do a ton of sim racing. I, I really enjoy it. Do you, uh, do you conceptualize it as like different, than racing or it's like its own discipline like sim racing is its own thing i think it and i i try to preach this a lot to to Haley a lot too is i think sim racing can help you um i don't think it's like hey go race the xfinity car at vegas and practice the xfinity car at vegas and it's like anything like her ford sim yeah you know like they go to the ford sim it's it's damn near pretty close that no, but I think what it does help you in is racecraft. Um, you got the guys, yeah, hell, sometimes you're playing against the same guys you're racing against that weekend. And, uh, I think the racecraft side of it, of that guy's going to make that move in real life. They're going to do that in real life. And you have to understand how to, uh, maneuver within that and, and, you know, either, go against it and, or, or, or follow them or whatever you're going to do. So I think you end up making the same real life decisions that you make on the sim, uh, to a sense. And, uh, I think more than anything, it's just, you're racing and you're keeping that competitive nature. So I'm a big advocate of it. I think it helped me a ton. You got to think I came from literally, I started racing micro sprints in Florida. Micro sprints in Florida is not what dirt racing is. It's, like the tracks don't get slick. They're very sandy. You're just a lot of throttle time. And I never knew what it was like to run on a slick and like in the slick, but I played a lot of R factor back then when I racing didn't have dirt and I was racing against Christopher Bell and Rico and Kyle Larson, Logan CV and guys who are winning USEC titles and world of outlaw championships and world of outlaw races. And like you clearly see it gets slick and you know, I got to be here or I got to be here. And, uh, and then once I did start traveling, it like second nature, it was like, Oh yeah, look, there's the cushion. There's this. And guys typically who come from Florida for the most part, they really struggle when a track gets slick because they don't do it ever. And so I think it, it helped me a ton there. And then even in the pavement world, when I went to that, I didn't know what I was doing, but I had an idea because of sim racing. For sure. I mean, I think the the proof is in the pudding. Like all the all the names you just mentioned there, running R Factor before I Racing had dirt. Like, there's a reason those guys are, you know, where they are. They're they're putting in the, that time. And and that's not to say because I definitely don't agree that if you're a great sim racer, you can be a good race car driver. I don't think people who come from absolutely zero racing background and only sim race can go get in a real car and be good. Now that's not to say what time they couldn't, I think with time and them putting the effort in and learning it, they could, but I think it just, it betters you if you do have a, a racing background. Now, for instance, kids like Raja, 
Raja came straight from sim racing to real life. And he, he's like, when he first started, he struggled, struggled, and then he got better and better. And then the sim racing started coming into play. Those moves, the repetition, the being consistent, the going for the best lap time, constantly one-upping your buddies, like that started to come in and his learning curve like went from here and just super fast. Um, but I think at the beginning, when you just come from sim racing, it, going to real life is it's like, shit, if I hit that wall, I don't hit escape. Like, and, and if I do this, this doesn't happen. So, um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and like you think about it, even if you're whatever, say like, you know, in my instance, like I've never, never even come close to a super speedway, but you know, if I lined up a ride to run a super speedway, like I'd have to have a thousand races on the sim to learn the air, you know, figure out the strategy. Like, otherwise you're so far behind the eight ball when you show up there and you think you're just gonna, you know, wing it. Yeah, I would not, I would a hundred percent agree with that. Um, speedway racing in is, is its own deal. Like it's hang on and hold on. Um, but if you want to be good at it, yeah, you have to, really understand the air and, and understand the moves and the runs. And I think something like that's where sim racing does come into play is where you're able to at least do it. The only difference is, is like on sim race, you're like, screw it. I'm splitting that hole. And in real life, you're like, damn, I ain't doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. It's going to hurt in real life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, in sim racing, you have an escape key. Yeah. And even if you wreck, damn, my safety rating went down. My I rating went down. In real life, shit. There's a lot of shit that could get messed up real quick. For sure. My uh, my crew chief, old school, super late model racer, would, would always say on iRacing to guys when they'd get pissed. You know, they're all pissed about a wreck. And he's like, that's nothing. Have your wife hit you over the head with a frying pan and throw 40 grand into the fire. Then you'll you'll know what it feels like. <laughs> that's exactly right yeah. yeah the money side of it's way more way more than just my eye rating my safety rating or whatever the case might be yeah so going back to uh the youtube stuff how has your like your life changed from becoming so public like vlogging you know you're now putting your life out there was that kind of a conscious decision or just let's you know let's see how it goes well, I mean, for Haley and I, like, it was, we had to, uh, to, to make money. Like, at that time when she's truck racing, there's no money incoming from the truck racing. I mean, sure, yeah, you get a percentage or whatever the case is, but 90% of them just put that right back into the pot to go racing again. So sure. for us, we had to have a, a sense of income, and it was like, Hey, she's done YouTube before. Her family's always had a channel. Um, I know how to film and I know how to edit. And so we just tackled it together. Um, and for us, it was, you know, the way we forever in the beginning, that was our only source of income. Um, and so we were full bore at it. But I don't think it's as much as putting your life out there as people might think. Mm. Um, there's a lot that you're not filming. Um and and in the beginning, that's why you saw us putting three videos out a week. We were Monday, Wednesday, or was it Monday, Thursday, Sunday, or two, Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday in the beginning. Um, and we, cause we had to, I mean, 
we had to make money. Um, and the only way to grow a YouTube channel is by putting in that much amount of effort. Um, and, and now it's like, all right, we've got this business, we've got this business, we've got this business, and we got that business. And not to say we don't focus on it as much, but it's also like, hey, now you have a lot more time to to focus on what's important. Um, and then also we're traveling a, t a ton and doing a lot more traveling and going to this race and going to that race and going to this meeting, going to this meeting. There, there is a lot less time to film um, and less ideas um, to do. So when as far as putting your personal life out there, a lot of times we're purpose filming. Mm -hmm. So like it's like, hey, do you have an idea for, for filming? I'm like, yeah, I was thinking about doing this. Um, and whatever that is, uh, let's, you know, last week we got it or two weeks ago, we got a Can-Am and it was like, Hey, let's go pick up the new Can-Am, drive it around, drag race it against the old Can-Am. Boom. We got a video. And, and so you just, you film going to do that and you turn the camera on when that's being done and I edit it. So it's like, if I don't want that being shown, if I'm like, yeah, I don't think that sounded good for me to say, then I just don't put it in. <laughs> You're right. Um, so it's not as much as putting your personal life out there as people might think. I, I, at least I don't feel right. And I guess the reason I asked again, looking at those videos, you guys had a video um, where you had like a legit like stalker and you got like death threats. Like that's, that's gotta be a little unnerving dude. Uh, Yeah. That. So like in times like that, right? Like you're like, we're so focused on this. We have nothing able to film, time to film, nothing, but we got to put a video out. Mm. So let's be real with people, tell them what we're going through and put it out there. And, uh, and, and I do think it like in stuff like that, yeah, you do put your personal life out there. But I also think at the same time, it, it lets people know, like, and understand some of the shit that you do have to deal with. Um, yeah, that situation was crazy it got far worse than what that video talked about i mean we're talking like cops and night vision and and ars behind the house like going through the woods and um him message you like knock knock who's there i'm like go out of your house turn right posting videos of your house while you're like posting videos of you working in your garage like i'm way out there working in the micros and all of a sudden a video pops up on tiktok and you're like that was three minutes ago and that's me and you're like holy shit so yeah that situation got pretty crazy um but uh it was it got resolved and um i'm glad it got resolved and it's kind of all that's said and done jeez dude like i can't imagine that that stress like that's like uh <laughs> like that i i can't imagine like how much stress that would be like <laughs> Yeah, uh, it got to a point where like it was like Haley would sit and watch. We have cameras all around the house, um, every door, every window, everything. So Haley would sit there and watch the cameras while I would go to the bathroom. Or if she was making dinner, I sat there and watched cameras. And it was like 2, 3, 4 a.m. And then, uh, yeah, we sat there and just monitored uh, just because you're kind of helpless. Um in that situation at times, uh, you can feel super helpless and you're the sitting duck. Um, so, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to have, um, 
the sheriff department help us out a lot, like sit in a car outside overnight, all night, a different sheriff each night would sit out there, but that doesn't come with just help. Like you have to pay them to sit out there all night so you can at least sleep. Um, we were fortunate enough to have um, TJ Majors, who was Haley's spotter at the time, uh, obviously work with Junior and Junior had a security team um, and he ref, you know, recommended them to us and they came and did a whole month with, with us. Um, I mean, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed to the moment you're sleeping, they drive you, they do everything. Um, and they walk with you everywhere you go, whether you're going in the grocery store or whatever the case is, um, call it overkill. Um, but when your life is threatened, it's kind of, you feel at least some sort of peace that you got another set of eyes around you and people who are highly trained in, in that field. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's good that, uh, that it got resolved. That must be like the biggest weight off your back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's still like even dealing with that to a lot, like you're going to court and you're in court, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple times. And it's, it's a long process and it takes forever and it's dreadful and it's just something else you have to deal with while you're trying to do everything else. You're trying to focus on racing and watch footage and go to the sim and every it's like, damn dude, like I got to deal with this. But, um, and, and that does come from putting your life out there. You give a lot of people a false sense of almost who you are. Mm. Um, but, and when people have huge social followings like Haley does people, when, when there's 1.5 million Instagram followers, if someone creates a fake account and messages 1.5 million people, someone's going to believe it. I mean, there's when there's you know that many people, at least one, two, three, four people are going to be like, oh, she got a second account. Oh, she's texting me, yeah. you know, and um, and and that's just you know, how it happens. And even though you tell people it's not real and it's fake and this and that, when they don't believe it and, uh, and certain people think, you know, whatever they think and, and that's what causes it. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, more and more these days as people live their lives online, whether it be listening to podcasts or, you know, following YouTubers, like they gain this sense of like, you know, if I only ran into this person, we'd be friends. And, you know, we have this, it's like this one-sided like relationship where you, you, you know, you think you're, you're whatever friends or, or something like that. Like it, it is crazy. And I think it's more and more of a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I know that for a lot of YouTubers that like we've done collabs with, um, collaborations for those who don't know is just when we, Say, you know, we link up, hey, let's make a video together. It helps. It introduces our viewers to them and their viewers to us. Um, and so we've done a lot of collabs. And there are some people, I would say like ourselves, that are pretty much the same people that you're going to get on and off camera. Um, you might over-exaggerate here, over-exaggerate there. But uh, for the most part, it's pretty similar. And then there's some people that it's like camera turns on and you're like, whoa where that come from? Or you've watched their videos and you meet them to do a collab and you're like, holy shit, like that's not who I expected. And then the camera turns on and they're who you've watched. And you're like, holy crap. Like this is literally 
legitimately a totally different human being. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess people, you know, people are performing, right? Yeah, that's what it is. I mean, you're putting on a TV show. No one watches TV that much anymore. It's your streaming service or YouTube. And, um, you know, I know a lot of YouTubers that, that really are a lot different than on and off camera. I, and there, there are a lot of them that are the same, like the same all, all times, but there's, you know, a handful that we've collabed with. And I'm like, dear Lord, that's someone's totally different, but Hey, it works for them. And that's how they make their money and it works. So who am I to fault it? Sure. Sure. There's actors that act every day on TV that we watch that aren't the, not even the same character. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point for sure. I mean, I was going to ask if it, if it like that situation, <clears throat> you know, dissuaded you from whatever, I guess, sharing more, I don't know, whatever it may be like shots of outside your house and stuff like that. But like, man, in, in 2023, like if someone, even if you have an Instagram account, like if someone wants to find you, they can find you and, and you're never like, if you're racing NASCAR, you're going to have to put yourself out there, whether, whether it's a YouTube channel or not. Like, it's just, it's just the territory we all live in now. I think. I agree. I, I think there's, you know, unfortunately, that's the way it is in 2023. You can find anybody anywhere. Just it just is what it is. But I guess it's part of uh, the, I guess you would say uh, limelight. I don't I don't know. Um, and that's just I guess that's just what you have to deal with. Um, so, yeah, we do the right things and put up with it the the correct way. And you know, I, I mean, from from there, like you look at guys like. Justin Bieber, uh, these huge celebrities, they can't even walk out of their house. Yeah. Like it's crazy, crazy. They walk out and it's just like, I don't know how I would deal with that. And, and, you know, and so, but like you, to your point is anybody can find anybody. I mean, he walks out from a gym and it's camera. How the hell they know he's there, you know, but it's 2023. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, is there anything that you've kind of like learned or had personal growth through the, through the YouTube channel? Like, you know, putting yourself out there, I think, um, you know, for me anyways, in the podcast, like you don't know what you really believe until you say it out loud or you put it out there. Like I think, and I think it's a, a good thing to some degree to, you know, to at least expose yourself to a lot of people and then you get feedback, whether it's, you know, good or bad. Um, I think YouTube has done a few things for me. Um, it's taught me how to build a business. Um, and it's taught me how to hold yourself accountable. Um, because when money was tight for a while, it was like, if you don't film, you don't make money. If you don't edit, I mean, I don't want to edit at 4am too bad. You have to like, we have to make money. Um, and so it's taught me that much, but it's also taught me, and, and I didn't have this when I was racing. I had like 4,000 Instagram followers. I mean, it's like damn near my high school class. <laughs> yeah. Plus, uh, you know, I mean, obviously not that big, but you get what I'm saying versus where you're at now. And it's like, yeah, they're obviously Haley's followers, but I get this, you know, I, I get the, um, the feedback as well. And it's taught me how to tune that out um, because there's a lot of hate. Um, guys that have never drove a race car or 
it, dude, you could literally, we rebuilt my buddy's shop out of our good hearts. We were like, you know what? Let's help our buddy out. We have an off season a couple weeks ago and we redid this kid's shop for him. Um, and you know, is one of my really good friends. So we redid it and it's like, oh, you should have done this. Oh, you should have done this. This would have made your life way better. Why did you do it this way? Why did it's like, shut up. But if you just learn how to tune that out or people that say, oh, why is Haley not on the sim? Blah, 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 blah. What do you want? I can't freaking go to the Ford sim. Like you want me to go film it? I'm not even allowed there. Yeah. Like you don't, you have to understand when we're filming, it's like one day out of a week, maybe four hours of that whole day. There are six other damn days with 24 hours in them that a lot of other shit happens. And so they might, they want to, Oh, you're spending too much time doing this. Like when you were full-time racing, you mean to tell me for four hours out of the week, you didn't do something that wasn't focused on your racing. No, like you, you did. And it was probably more and like every racer, but no one else is putting it out there. No one else is putting out when, um, when they're doing other fun stuff. So it just opened your, your door to negative comments and, and hate. And it has taught me how to tune it out. Half the time, I, I think a lot of them are funny um, because it's like, you are so ridiculous. You have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Um, and it's also funny, like when you do, like say you redo that shop and they're telling you how to do it. Like you understand this was like a week ago and I've already filmed and edited and posted the video. You want to tell me now? Yeah. Like it, you're serving no purpose. Um, so yeah, it's taught me how to tune that out. And obviously, as you can tell, I, I still haven't mastered it, but, uh, but <laughs> for the most part, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You guys, uh, you guys built like an oval track, uh, like go-kart asphalt track in, I don't know if it's your backyard or someone's backyard. Like that's all the kind of shit that, you know, like my brother and I thought like, when we were kids, like, oh, we could do this, we could do that. And you're like, you're getting to do all that cool stuff. Do you ever pinch yourself or like, man, I'm like, this is badass. It's so hard. Um, it's so hard to like, because it comes and and you almost get as, as bad as it says, as bad as it is, it's very easy to get jaded of it. And like, to where it's like, Oh, sweet. You know, we got this or we got that. Um, obviously there's a lot of stuff I do get excited about. Like the go-kart track's badass. Um, like as a kid, I always wanted a go-kart track. And as a kid, I always wanted a pit bike track. And now I got both. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you would have told, I don't know, 15, 14, 13 year old me that, that one day I'd be making a living off of YouTube and selling merchandise and being able to race at a pretty competitive level with nice shit and have a go-kart track in my backyard and a pit bike track in my front yard and a can-am track on the other side of the front yard. Like I'd be like, no way. But when it comes and it's, and it's just like, everything's moving so fast. And it, and another thing is, is when you're filming it. So like you do the go-kart track or like you build a can-am track yeah, because you want to, and you want to do the go-kart track. But at the, at the end of the day, it's a video, it's an idea for a video to get 
okay, if we put a go-kart track in, we get a video of building it, get a video of driving on it first time, get a video of a race, and we can always have nice, easy filler content of going out there and running laps. You get six, seven, eight videos out of it. And then when you go away from it, you can come right back to it and do another video on it. So it's buying things for work, but they're badass. So at times, you know, it, it's hard. Sometimes I sit back and I go, damn, like it is badass what we get to do. And it's badass the place we get to go. And, but in the moment, sometimes you do forget to like almost appreciate it. And that's just truth. I mean, people are going to say, you know, wow, he's ungrateful. This No, it's like, like, you know, okay, for instance, if I told you right now you were going to run a KBM truck, you'd be like, shit me? Yeah. You know, like, seriously? But when you were racing full time, it was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm going to get to do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, 100%. It was not like this huge thing. 100%, 100%, you know, with whatever anyone does, like, you know, my my dad's business is buying and selling classic cars, restoring cars. And like, that's his, you know, passion and he gets to do, and he built a business around it, you know, and some of the best advice he ever gave me or anyone who asked really is, dude, I still show up six, seven days a week and I work like you're, whatever it is you decide to do for a living, it's still work. 100%. I mean, YouTube was at the, at the beginning, it was I had so much fun and I was so creative, like the ideas and the filming and this, I mean, we had a shop and in the shop we had two editing bays and we had another filmer and another editor and we would both come in when we were putting three videos out, um, later, or I think we, at that point we had gone to two and this was later, probably a year and a half, two years into our YouTube journey. And I would edit half of it and he would edit half of it. Now it's back to just me. But uh, we've kind of pulled a little bit of focus away from it um, and put focus into other things. Um, it's got a nice, sustainable base. I'm not trying to be – of course, I would love to be as big as C-Boys or Cletus McFarlane or whatever the case is. But you've got to know, like, hey, those guys are doing this as a full-time, everyday job. Haley's full-time, everyday job is to go out and perform on the racetrack. YouTube is secondary and it always has been secondary. A lot of people seem to get that mixed up because you do see a lot of like going and playing on a go-kart track or going and playing on K&M. But to my point earlier, it's one day out of the week for four hours. Like, I mean, it's like if you said, Hey, I want to go to GoPro. Like, it's not like this big deal um, that people made it out to be. But back then we had another filmer, another editor, and we were, you know, both putting full bore into it and I was editing half and he was editing half. And now it's like, sit down on my couch, get on my laptop and I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you got the clothing company and I like, you're definitely a creative guy and an entrepreneurial guy. What do you have cooking up for the future as far as that goes? So, I mean, yeah, we have our, um, we, I'm sitting in our, printer room so right now we produce all of our own merchandise i mean i've got stuff sitting here ready to be shipped out um and uh we produce that so for a while we didn't produce our own merchandise we would buy it through a screen printer shop but what that did was it limited us because say i order i don't know let's throw an even number out there uh 500 garments of the same design 
sometimes that's sold out in a night and sometimes it's never sells out and it's sitting and it has sat on a shelf because it just wasn't a great design and people didn't love it. Or another shirt I put out at that time was better. And they were like, you know what, if I'm going to spend 30 bucks, 35 bucks, I would rather spend it on that shirt than I would that shirt. And so it, it, it limits you because when you do sell out in 24 hours, it's like, ah, oh, it's a great problem to have, but could that shirt have sold double that? I don't know. So when we're able to produce it ourselves, and that's why I got a direct to garment machine was because we never can sell out now and, and stuff that has been sold out for years. I just re put on the website and people sure enough, they wanted it and, and they would go on there. And for instance, that shirt I grabbed this camouflage one, um, that was something I produced, I would say year one. And it has sat on the website archived, for all this time because it sold out and I relisted on the website because it's not sold out because all it takes is a black garment and we have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of black garments sitting in the garage and white garments sitting in the garage and gray and whatever other color. So they, they order it. You just pull that file and you print it. Now that was a huge step for us, but the next step is to be able to outsource. So if, if you wanted shirts done, you know, I wanted to do that. And that was originally a thought. The problem is a direct to garment machine is not as fast as a screen printer. Mm. And that's the downside to it. It takes way longer to do, but it opens up your buying power because I can put a shirt out now. And truthfully, I cannot make a single one. If I don't think it's going to sell, because in the past I would make a design, show Haley, hey, what do you think? Now, I don't think it's going to sell and here's why. And it was kind of like, well, if I do it and it doesn't sell, then she's right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. we've lost money. But, you know, so this has opened up our buying power a ton. And with a screen printer, it'll make it to where we can outsource. And also, if we, when we release, okay, for instance, we have a shirt coming out for the Tulsa shootout. Um, it's got her car on it and my car on it. So when we post that shirt and say there is 500 orders, well, on a screen printer, you can knock that out in a day. On a directed garment that takes a week so it on a big order like that to get a screen printer i can knock them out boom and get the base out and now if someone does order let's take for instance that camouflage shirt all right well this machine's still great because i can still do one-off shirts and still get it done reasonably and quickly and cost efficiently where if i wanted to do one screen print shirt You've got to make the screens. You got to do it just, it's not feasible um, by any means. Even 10 is not feasible. You spend more money in making the screens and everything like that. So to get a screen printer and, and to build out that side, um, you know, I want to buy a, we want to get a full blown shop, uh, screen printer shop going uh, hopefully by summer next year to where we can knock out our big orders and also be able to take on, uh, for instance, your shirt or this guy's shirt or this guy's shirt needs 500. This guy needs a thousand uh, and build that business as well. So that, um, you know, later on in life. And, and another thing for that is I've taught my younger brother how to run this machine and how to do this. So for him, it's given him a trade and it's given him clients. You know, once we get the screen printer going, it'll give him a way to build up a clientele. So if, you know, he ever wants to move on and go do something else, 
or he wants to open up his own shop, he has a clientele that he's built and he knows how to do it. Um, and so, um, for, but for us, it, it just, you know, Casey's got a shop, uh, Casey Kane, Truex has got a shop with, with swell. Um, and there's, there's money to be made in it. Um, and if you do it correctly, I, I don't foresee why it wouldn't work. Yeah, for sure. For sure. People don't appreciate how big t-shirt sales are in NASCAR. Yeah, that, that is for sure. But also like how much other people need, uh, shirts printed, whether it's corporations and, and giveaways and people get shirts done all the time. Um, but you know, taking on a, a big shop like that takes on a lot of tasks out of myself. Um, it takes a lot of tasks out of my younger brother, uh, with putting him in, in the lead role of understanding how to deal with, you know, say you, if you want a shirts done, it's not just, Hey, can I get some shirts? Yeah, no problem. Here's our price. Oh, okay. Paid. No, you've got complaints. You've got time. You've got, um, you know, deadlines you got to meet. And so, um, and then also dealing with a designer because at that rate, there's no way that I could physically design shirts all day, every day with everything else I've got going on. So, um, I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and, um, I take a lot of advice from podcasts and like, I listen to Logan Paul a lot. Logan's got great ideas and he always talks about like outsourcing and, and, you know, how do you take yourself out of doing the hardship work and being able to focus on something else and build that up and focus on something else and build that up and put people in roles to take on what you used to do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess you just have to keep going and keep building and building and, and, uh, hopefully one day that you've got seven different forms of income. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, man, before I let you go, uh, I ask all my guests, uh, or at least the ones who I think will give me a good answer, um, some advice. And, you know, it's funny. I've heard that, uh, you used to ask kids in the sixties, seventies and eighties, like, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And it was like astronaut or whatever the, the biggest thing was on media, on TV at that point. And now you ask kids in school what they want to do when they grow up, and it's YouTuber. Um, so what advice do you have for, you know, some young kid who wants to be a YouTuber and they don't know, like, you know, where to start? You have to be extremely creative. Um, that is the number one thing about YouTube. Um, and you've got to find your, your niche. Um, for instance, someone who's gone from zero to 100 extremely fast is a, a guy named Eric, A-I-R-R-A-C-K. Um, he has built his channel to like, like 10, 12 million or, I mean, I couldn't even tell you. It's, it's huge. Um, Eric has, but he put the time in, he put the effort in and he put out quality content. Nobody wants to watch you do average things. Like for instance, our worst videos are when we are doing average things. Okay. Let's take, for instance, we just went and ran a micro and we were testing for the shootout. What's an average video? Hey, we're just driving around the track testing. And you know what? That video is doing absolutely horrible. But if when I go out and decided the one day that I was going to take our, an old couch, put wheels on it, tie it to a quad, lay on the couch, have my buddy drive the quad and jump it off of a berm. That video did awesome because why people love that. They think it's hilarious, you know? And so I would say to just be extremely creative and it takes a lot of money 
to make money on YouTube because you have to do bigger and better. In this day and age, in the old day and age of YouTube, people fell in love with the creator. Mm. Roman Atwood days, um, Logan Paul days, when there was daily vloggers and it was like them sitting on their damn couch or cooking a meal, people watched it. Nowadays, in this Mr. Beast era of YouTube, you have to constantly go bigger and better and bigger and better. And it's made it extremely tough. So if you are trying to start YouTube and you're trying to do it, you have to just be bigger and better at all times. Like just keep one upping yourself and it gets extremely hard to do. And it costs a lot of damn money to do, but you have to devote money to something to make money. I've never seen a company start at literal no money put into it and become a successful business. Like you have to put money in there and you got to invest in yourself because otherwise, you know, get nice quality cameras, figure out how to edit. Um, there's an editor by the name of Hillier Smith on YouTube. Uh, he did all of YouTube, all of uh, Logan Paul's edits forever. And uh, I've watched his YouTube videos of do's and don'ts a million times. And he's extremely calculated in the way he edits. Um, and, and some of those things fall over into what we do. So yeah, like I said, I would just invest a lot of time, have the right resources, um, be a good editor, be a good filmer, be a good, you know, have the right mindset and, uh, and invest time. Right on, right on. That's good. Well, I appreciate it, man. Tell, uh, tell everyone where they can, uh, follow along. Yeah. So obviously Haley's, uh, Haley Deegan YouTube. Uh, it's where we're doing all of our stuff at. And then, you know, we have our Instagram handles. Mine's just my name and Haley's just her name. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, gearing up for one of the biggest races of the year for myself. Haley's doing it for the fun of it. For me, it's like Super Bowl. So, uh, it's a lot of work getting ready for it, but, uh, we'll be head there. So you guys can follow along as we, uh, head off. Right on. Appreciate your time, man. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. See you guys next week.